Welcome back to the Life at the Academy podcast. I'm Midshipman Gavin Milligan. In this episode, myself and Midshipman Peter Shaner had the privilege of interviewing the current Commandant of Midshipman, Colonel McDonough. Keep listening to hear Colonel McDonough reflect on his time as a midshipman and his career in the Marine Corps, including the challenges he's faced and the lessons he's learned while serving as Commandant. Sir, thank you so much for being here with us today. We'd like to start off by asking about your own life as, at the academy as a midshipman. So each midshipman has their own role within the broader culture of the brigade. Uh, some have famously pushed back against aspects of being a midshipman, such as Senator John McCain, while others fully embrace their responsibilities. Uh, where did you fall on this spectrum? Uh, I would say I was probably somewhere in the middle. I, I don't think I was quite uh, some of the John McCain escapades that we've all heard about. But uh, I did get in trouble plebe year for underage drinking Army-Navy game. Uh, it stood 30 days of restriction. Pretty much after that, stayed clean. Uh, I was on commandants or superintendents list most of the time after that. But I like to have fun. I went and did good, you know, a lot of good things. We had a good company. We had a, we did a made, went skiing, had a lot of fun trips. So I would say I was in the middle. I worked hard, but I also like going out and having fun. Sir, faculty members make a lot of their own contributions to the development of Michigan during their four times at the Naval Academy. Is there a specific class or professor that you can think back that made a particular impact on your development here? I was a systems engineer, which is now robotics and control, and I really enjoyed it. We did a thing called the systems ball, which was the very, very early version of like, uh, you know, the robot tournaments you see where robots try to destroy each other. But it was where we had to put a, a ping pong ball through a hoop. We had to build a robot from bottom up to do that. And there was a couple different professors that supported the program. I thought it was good because this was the first time I, my experience at the academy, I think we've come a long way, where you know I spent most of my last semester on this project, and there was a lot of free time to do the work, you know, so whether it was solder, literally soldering a circuit board or going down to the fabrication lab and watching them bend metal based off of the design I came up with. And I thought that idea of project-based learning and that we were building something that then we would actually get to use and, and compete, I thought was really kind of definitely a capstone-type project. So I was glad to come back and see that was JV compared to the stuff that you all do now. So I would say it was just the way the department, and this was 30 years ago, embraced the idea of project-based learning and how I had to employ everything from my double E, like soldering circuits, all the way through computer-based vision, all of those things um, that are, you know, grade school level technology now, but to come up with a project and it with how we did in the, that final systems ball affected our grade. So I wouldn't say it was one professor necessarily is more of the way that we did project-based learning. So I, and I think as my experience in the fleet, I went and got my master's degree in modeling simulation, and I've done a lot of science and technology jobs. I still look back on what I did there as foundational. Moving towards uh, kind of your legacy at the academy as a midshipman, uh, your classmates cited quite a few stories in your lucky bag bio. Are you willing to share any specific details about what they said in there, sir? Uh, the only, yeah, so I met my wife in high school. We were part of the 2% club. We didn't date steadily throughout high school, or through college, excuse me. I ended up bringing her to ring dance. Um, actually, 
barely. She was a, this was before cell phones, if you can all imagine that. But uh, we got in an argument the night before she was supposed to fly out for ring dance. And she ended up hanging up the phone on me. And I was in, we used to have phone booths in Bancroft Hall. And so I did not know if she was coming to the airport or not the next day. So I go up to BWI. At the time, you could walk to the gate. And I was sitting at the gate waiting to see if she was going to get off the plane. And sure enough, she did. From that point forward, we were pretty steady. And I proposed to her a year after graduation. We were married about a year after that. So of the things in there, that is the story that I will talk about. I came here with Kim, and I'm still, here we are 27 years later, still married to her. I'll reference your first question about... uh, about what type of midshipman was I. Some of those other stories lead to stories that uh, I've learned to outgrow. So, Of course, sir, just to tag on to that, uh, you, you talked about kind of dating at the academy and being a part of the 2% club. Is there anything you could highlight that might be a difference back then as, as to something you might see now or any stories about that other um, you just shared? The connectivity is really a big thing. Like if you were long-distance dating you know, I say this in the 90s, it was really hard in that we wrote letters, right? Actually writing letters. And that was part of the way we communicate. I mean, we would go to the phone booth, but like on a Sunday morning as a plebe or whatever, if I went and made a phone call and she wasn't at home at that time, I didn't talk to her for a week. So it was hard to maintain a relationship uh, long distance. And we, like I said, we ebbed and flowed and she dated other people and you know, that personal contact of a writing letter of, of a phone call and then seeing each other in person, it worked, uh, but it was hard. I think now with social media, with email, there's a lot easier ways to stay in touch. But I would also say, I guess there's probably a lot more distractions now with, you know, you name the app of things that, that can pull you off of your, your course as far as a relationship. So in some ways it was simpler um, but I, I, it definitely took a lot of work to stay at it with the lack of communication. So I think at the end of the day, it's got to be if, if the two of you are you know, meant to be, is it, the, is, it, is it a real relationship? And for us, it was the fact that she saw something in me when I was 17 or 18, and, you know, uh, and that we're still together. I feel pretty lucky. So good question. Yes, sir. Sir, did your service assignment desires change throughout the, your time at the academy, or were you always fixated on the Marine Corps? Uh, no, I've, I said, I've said this publicly, and I, I, I believe it to be true. I don't know that I knew you could be a Marine when I came here. So you've all seen Top Gun Maverick. So original Top Gun came out in 1987, 88, whatever, like when I was in high school. And that was a big driver for wanting to come to the Naval Academy. My father and grandfather were both in the Air Force, Army Air Corps for my grandfather and then a plank owner in the Air Force. Um, but I had a tragic kickball accident when I was 10. And so I had to get a waiver to even get into the Naval Academy. So I knew flying was probably out of the picture, but I still had my hopes up that I could fly. I quickly learned that that was not going to be an option, so looked at other options. Going to Protramid, which we did when I was a you know, youngster summer, we did, we did or excuse me, we did after the second class year, but for the, my, my youngster summer, I was on a destroyer in the med, and it was an awesome experience. I'm like, this is what we seemed pretty good. I went to jump school that summer. I'm like, oh, I kind of like being, you know, being on the ground and doing, doing this sort of stuff. 
uh, ProTrimid, I think then, so the next year goes by and I, I ProTrimid got a little taste for everything. And I, I said, you know, the Marine Corps is what draws me, but I'll say what like kind of cemented it for me was the people that you meet on the yard, right? And I think for all of us, hopefully, I think that's for all of us, that's the input. And I was drawn to the Marine officers that I met here, guys like now retired Lieutenant General Nicholson, a uh, guy named uh, Chris Pete, who was a um, force recon Marine, got out and was a hostage rescue for the FBI. So I was drawn by folks like that to that style of leadership. So I considered doing submarines. I looked at that really very strongly. Like if I wasn't going to be able to go Marine Corps, I think I probably would have went in subs. I don't know about being underwater all the time, but I, the idea of what they did I thought was very unique and I, it was uh, exciting. So the Marine Corps I was drawn to, and I think it was really after youngster, or excuse me, second class summer, that I was like, I was totally bought in on doing that. But it took, I would say I was definitely open to all ideas once I found out I couldn't be an aviator and I couldn't go to dive school, which means I couldn't be a SEAL or EOD. So my uh, options were fewer, but the Marine Corps was what I was drawn to for sure. So good question. Sir, we talked about uh, your challenges with regard to the 2% Club, but overall, how did the challenges facing the brigade now differ from when you were here as a midshipman? I think the challenge of cynicism is the same. And that's a challenge. Four years is a long time. And, you know, I talk about it. Not everybody has a great day. And I remember being cynical about this place. You know, I would say that youngster year in question of why am I here? I mean, I actually applied or I finished filling out my application to Notre Dame as a youngster. I'm like, so one school I didn't go into because I didn't, I didn't get into. I didn't finish the essay. So I was like, that's why I didn't get in. So I actually finished it, put it on my desk, and I ended up not sending it off. You know, I questioned of why am I putting up with all this stuff. And this was, you know, you plebe year, you just kind of grind. Like, you're just doing it. And youngster year, you're like, oh, I guess I'm thinking about, do I really want to do this? Uh, so I think that, and then at some point, you, you get bought in, right? And for, it happens, you know, at different times for different people. I think for me, the idea of being as a second class, I was leading and mentoring, I was training plebes, and then as a firstie, where you're literally responsible for people, that's when, okay, I got it. This is why I'm doing this. So I think the cynicism is the same, and I think a lot of the same questions that we all ask ourselves, is this worth it? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, I think are still there. That's why I try and hopefully give you all the why we're doing the things we're doing. And at some level, and I, I feel the same way, at some level, you don't have to agree with my why, but that's, that's what it is. And at some point, you, you may say that this isn't worth it, and the juice isn't worth the squeeze, and you may choose to leave. Uh, but I think everyone put in a whole lot of work to get here, and hopefully you can see the goal of why you're here, and the hard work does pay off. The sacrifice, the self-discipline do pay off. The things I think have changed, I'll say the mental health concerns, I think, are, are more prominent. You know, a new CDC study just came out and it talked about the, the prevalence of suicidal ideations and, and other mental health concerns of, the, of teenagers in high school. I do think social media is a large part of that. It generates stress. It generates a lot of added burden that you already have hard lives and now you throw in all this I got to be perfect or I got to be like every, everyone else or opportunity for people to anonymously attack each other is not something that was there. I think addressing that, the amount of time and to include myself 
spend looking at my phone that I could be interacting with somebody. I could be talking to my kids. I could be doing whatever. Uh, I don't think we fully realize the, the, the amount of time that wastes. And, and midshipmen do not have time to waste, as you all know. There's too many things that, to go, that go on. I think a lot of the struggles of trying to, of understanding the daily life here, of what rule, you know, the following rules, all that, a lot of that hasn't changed. I mean, you mentioned Senator McCain. Sure, the same discussions about mid-regs were happening when he was here as when you all are here. But I think the way society has changed, chat GPT, which that, talk about changing the dynamic on honor. And I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's incredibly, that's amazing what it does, but it just adds this whole other wrinkle of, supposed to, no joke, a typewriter or a printer, or what, it's this whole new thing. So those challenges have changed, have changed, but I think getting midshipmen to understand the challenges and why it's worth it, I, that hasn't changed. So. so you often talk to the brigade about how Lieutenant General Furness has been a mentor to you throughout your time in the Marine Corps. Could you highlight some lessons he's taught you as well as other mentors and other lessons that they have taught you as well? Yeah, so I chose to have Lieutenant General Furness come and talk to the brigade. Uh, he was my division commander, and then just recently, since then, he was the assistant deputy commandant uh, for plans, policies, operations, and, the, and I was the executive assistant in that office. The reason I, I asked him to come and speak to you all is because the challenge that he tried to address, and he did address within 2nd Marine Division, was the same challenge that we face as a brigade in that the Marine Corps had been at war for 20 years straight. And we got really good at deploying, going over, you know, getting ready for deployment, going on deployment, and then we come back and we kind of reset and do it all over again. What we had lost was some of those basic things that it means to be a Marine. How we wear our uniforms, this is all going to sound familiar, how we keep our rooms, why we do those things, core traditions in the Marine Corps that are a piece of who we are as a disciplined organization that allow us to win in battle, to do that. We had become so ragged from so many back-to-back -back deployments and everything else, we needed to do a reset. Well, that sounds a lot like when I got here, coming out of COVID, a very similar scenario. And I will say, when I was there, when we did this, the rollout, it was painful and it didn't go well down at 2nd Marine Division. And part of it was that people didn't understand the why. Why are we doing this? Why are you making it, having this basic daily routine? And so, you know, in fact, General Furness took a lot of heat in the, from the Marine Times and social media. And it wasn't, no one disagreed with what he was saying. It was just the way it was presented. And he would be the first one to tell you that his intent was he got an A on it, but the rule out, he probably got a C or D on it. So I thought it was important the way he rolled that out to the officers after the reset, after we said, okay, let's try this again, was part of the brief that you all got. And I think it's all core foundational discipline that leads to excellence. And that's what happened in the 2nd Marine Division is we focused on those basics, being really good at the basics, build, the, building those routines, and we, the division became very solid and we were able to continue to deploy and do all the things we needed to do. So uh, from my perspective, the lessons that we learned at 2nd Marine Division, I think were lessons that have influenced how I've led you here. And I think, again, that why, going back to this, the why is important, right? Why, 
if you remember General Smith, ACMAX, just to come in the Marine Corps, he actually talked, and he's an Aggie, he's not even a grad, neither is General Furness, but he talked about why we do chow calls. And I thought it was funny that he could answer that, but yet when I asked some midshipmen on why we do chow calls, you know, the, the, sometimes the answer is, well, that's because what we've always done. Well, the reason we do chow halls is because I need to be able to look at a piece of information, memorize it quickly, and then regurgitate it quickly, whether that's in combat or in the Pentagon. And those are a skill set that, I'll be honest, I learned here that have benefited me up to this day. So I don't know, and I think COVID, in some ways, we've kind of lost the why are we doing these things. And one, it gives us the opportunity to re-examine should we be doing it. And if the things we say 100% we should be, then we need to make sure everybody understands that. So we lost some institutional memory. So that was part of why I brought General Furness here was because I think that discussion helped get after the why you wear uniforms, why we do all these, and I say you, we do all these things. So that's for General Furness. I'll be honest, if you asked me my other mentors or examples, I would actually point to two of my sergeants majors, Sergeant Major Reif, who also talked to the upperclassmen as part of post-traumatic winning, and my first battalion sergeant major, uh, Krauss, Dan Krauss, I learned as much from my senior enlisted leaders as I have in some ways from my officer mentors, you know, from my senior leaders that have allowed me to be successful. I mean, I'd say to get to where I am here. Sergeant Major Reif was somebody who, highly decorated combat veteran, wounded in combat, uh, has sought treatment, you know, not afraid to ask for help, and yet is, you know, hard-nosed, has both of those, has the empathy for individuals, and, and I've seen it in action, but also is, holds the standard. And I think that's something we should all try and model, and some of us do it well, and some of us, it's a challenge. And, I, and I've tried to have a leadership style here of the idea of there is a standard, I'm going to hold you to it, but every case is unique, and look, make sure I fully understand that. And so that's been my, you know, even the changes we've made in mid-regs. What are the things that don't make sense, aren't enforceable, let's get rid of those. But the things that are in there, you don't get to decide. Everyone's going to follow those rules. And, you know, Sergeant Major Reif is someone even today as we're working on the rewrite of the honor treatise, he's someone that I've reached out to ask his thoughts on this because this is something I would consider him an expert in. So, so it's, it's not just your seniors, it's certainly your peers and, and definitely your senior enlisted leaders. Yes, sir. Moving on to the role of Commandant as an institution throughout history, what was your perception of the role of Commandant while you were a midshipman, and has it changed now that you're in that role? Yes. So I go to church, and in the pew that I sit in, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, there's the engraving a plate for every Commandant from 1945 till today. And it's funny, so on Sunday, I'm totally, yeah, I'm paying attention, by the way, but I do look down and look at the names on there, and I look at the commandants who were here when I was here. And I'm going to be completely honest. I don't know that I ever had a conversation with any of them, so that would lead you to believe when I was adjudicated for underage drinking that I did not see that it was, I'm assuming it was at the battalion level, um, but I did not go to see the deputy or the commandant for that event. I, the gentlemen that were the commandant at the time, I, I could pick them out in a lineup. I know who they were, but it wasn't something, it was, they weren't somebody that I interacted with. And I'll be honest, it would probably be something where I would generally walk away from as opposed to walk to. I will say, and I, talking to my peers, I get generally the same answer. 
fast forward to today, I talk to a lot of midshipmen on a daily basis, and it's not me tracking them down, they come to me. And, and I, think, I think hopefully that's partially because I'm someone that people want to talk to, but I also think your generation, and this is an absolute good thing, are more open to come up and talk to people. Um, one, because you got good ideas, and, and, and it's, it makes sense. So I, I think there's a huge change in that. As a midshipman, I would never seek out in 06 to have a conversation. But I, I'm amazed on a daily basis that people will have a conversation, and they generally have a smile on their face, which is, you know, a good thing. Um, so I think that generational change of openness is important. I, you know, the one thing I caution midshipmen is if you go to a firsty dinner of the, over at the soup's house, here you are mingling with a whole bunch of folks to include the soup. When you go to the fleet or you go, you leave here and you go from Marine to the basic school or you go down to anywhere else, your peers will not be comfortable around senior officers. And I'll just, I just kind of caution mids of it's okay to be, you know, have a conversation and all that, but just kind of rem remember that rank differential just so it doesn't get you in trouble because some will be like, you know, the, the ensign or the second lieutenant going up to talk to the commodore or to the fleet commander, whatever it is, is, is not common. So I think that level of comfort is important because you all have ideas that I need to hear. So that feedback loop to me is absolutely critical. And I'll be honest, I don't know if my predecessors were getting that same level of feedback, honest feedback, because, you know, when things get filtered layer upon layer upon layer, you know, they could be, I have a problem. And by the time you hear it, yeah, we're all good because it gets softened as people go up. So I appreciate the fact that Mitch are willing to come up and talk to me, and I appreciate the, the opportunity for feedback. And it has led to many changes. And, I, you know, that's the same thing I'll tell you all, the same thing in the fleet. You know, we talk about deck plate leadership and getting out and talking to your folks. You know, every time I would get out as a regimental commander and go down to a battery, I would make sure to talk to not just the platoon commanders, the battery commander, or the, you know, the senior enlisted, talk to the junior Marines and sailors and say, how are you doing? You know, and that's when you'll hear a lot of things that maybe their leadership don't want you to hear, but if you're the person that can make changes, then you're the one who needs to hear it. So that has definitely changed. You know, I don't know that I ever talked to Admiral Preer as the Commandant of Midshipman when I was a firstie, so it's a good change. Sir, did you have any specific objectives or goals you set upon entering as Commandant? So one of the documents that I read beforehand was recently published, I think it had just been recently, Strategic Plan 2030. And I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that document, but it, it talks about, one of the things it talks about then there is attributes of a graduate. And I have shown those to you all at some point in time, some flavor. I think the important thing of any job you take, and for me especially this job, because it is so unique to any job I've had in the Marine Corps, is understanding the foundational documents you know the mission of the naval academy we've all had memorized right but what are the what are the things that govern the naval academy um and you know the strategic plan is kind of the glossy high level view but it it definitely it wasn't written 20 years ago it was like this is where we're going in the future um i also looked at the other governing documents about how the, the naval academy is organized um and then most importantly i looked at you know the current the superintendent my boss our boss how does he view the world? What are those things that are important to him? So I, I spent a fair amount of time making sure I understood the academy and then understood what's the role of the commandant and shipment within there. And I think it was helpful when I got here um, to at least be able to, to ask the right questions. They were framed within the, 
the lexicon and the goals that the common or excuse me the superintendent had set. You just mentioned, sir, when you first got here, something that I think about I would definitely overthink if I ever assumed the role of commandant was the first time addressing the brigade. Do you remember this instance, and was there anything, any impression you were trying to set when you first appeared and spoke in front of everyone? So I'll, I'll be honest. Every time I talk to the brigade or every time I talk to any element of the brigade, I won't say, I won't say I'm nervous, maybe appropriately nervous, but certainly the first time talking to the brigade, I mean, I had never talked to 4,400 people ever. I don't know if any of you have done that. That's kind of a big deal, right? Even General Furness, when he came and talked to us, he was like, looked at when we were looking at him, he was like, oh, holy cow, that's a lot of people. So for me, and, and I am an introvert, I just had this conversation, like public speaking is not something that comes natural to me. So what have I done? I, you know, I make sure I write out what I'm going to say. I practice. And first impressions are lasting, are important. So I spent a lot of time. I mean, I would say from the day I found out that I was going to get the job, which was in December, till I got here, I really thought about that event. Like, what am I going to say to the brigade the first time I got here? And very unique for at least the, the first season, second class, I wanted to make sure I was understanding of the environment I was stepping into, you know, coming out of COVID and what that meant. Um, and so I wanted to make sure I understood the context. And I, I think I mostly did, but I, I still think there were, there, I, there were things I didn't fully understand because it was such a different world of midshipmen living in St. John's. You know, the Hershey's didn't, you know, came back in October, I believe it was, if that's right. So the youngsters at the time. I think I wanted to make sure I did my homework. And, I, and again, going back to the first impression, I wanted to be, and you've, you've heard me say this, you know, my commandant's intent, there's only three things. I wanted it to be not just me rambling on because less, sometimes less is better, less is more, being clear and concise and not everyone leaving wondering what the heck he just said. So, yeah, I, I thought about it for months. And, I, and I, as I got closer you know, I, ref I refined it. I, I certainly had folks who were here and, and some of my senior mentors, General Allen, who was, I had mentioned it earlier, but he was, you know, first Marine Commandant. He was my commanding officer at the basic school when I was an instructor. Um, I have free had frequent conversations with him about, you know, his view on what it should look like talking to the brigade the first time. He actually rappelled down out of the rafters in Alumni Hall and I thought, I literally thought about it for about five minutes. And then I'm like, uh, no, I'm not General Allen. And so I didn't do that. But I was, I considered that, right? Talk about a scene setter of, of doing that. But that's, that's not who I am. I mean, that would have been fake. So I, again, the genuineness, I think, is also really important. You can't be somebody you're not. So I, I've been, I've tried all along to make sure that it, if you're hearing it from me, it's not an act. This is who I am. It's funny that you mentioned the repelling, sir. We were we, racking our brains <laughs> when we were thinking of these questions, trying to figure that one out. That was the we, inspiration yeah. for the question. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I, right, I, I, you know, to be honest, like, you can't be somebody that you're not. I actually, I mean, I did, I considered it, like, and I was like, that's not who I am, you know, but, uh, so I, I, you know, I thought about it. I thought about a couple different scenarios. But uh, I think just being a straight shooter is probably, especially, I'll be honest, 
coming in the environment I was that I came into, there was a lot of frustration of messaging and timing and word changing all the time. So I thought I'm going to be clear, concise, short, you know, and, and then be open to feedback. Sir, specific to the COVID problem you had to face coming in as commandant, how did you get the brigade back to the pre-COVID normal and what challenges did you face in that process? So the biggest deficit I saw out of COVID was the lack of interpersonal interaction here in Bancroft Hall, here in the classroom, and summer training, like no summer training. And so what could we not do? We couldn't add a fifth year <laughs> to everyone here. We couldn't double up summer. We couldn't take away leave uh, because we saw some of those things happen and it didn't, it made it worse, not better, right? The no Thanksgiving, uh, there was, you know, honestly it made it worse, not better. It made it hard and it, people that lived through it would tell you that was not enjoyable. So the real challenge, and I, we're still working through it, is how do I replace what was missed without crushing everyone? And, you know, I think last semester, you know, the Warrior Wednesday is one of the things we've tried to do that to, to not add more but make it more efficient and not take everyone's time during the evening and we're not there yet um, so that time the ability to replace shared experience and training without adding more time is really i don't not a physics major but i don't know that it's fully possible so what i tried to do and what i have done is try and create more opportunities to create for that experience via training you know, the, I guess how I gained my, my nickname of Mando Mac, right? Breakfast, mandatory breakfast. You know, I got it. And, you know, I ate in King Hall for four years as well. It is a noisy place. But just the fact that every morning when I wake up and I go to formation and I go and sit at the table, that as a squad leader, which was my favorite billet here as a midshipman, I have the ability to look everybody in the eyes and ask them how they're doing. Please can talk about newspaper articles. You can talk about X, Y, Z, Kate. There's a whole bunch of things you can do. But what I saw, and it, again, played out in this most recent CDC study, is the lack of personal engagement, the lack of people showing each other they care for each other has left to significant mental health issues. And how have I seen where that's paid off is when I've seen where people are in trouble, their peers or their upper class are the ones who grab them and get them the help they need. And that doesn't happen if you're not seeing each other. You don't know what the baseline, what normal is, right? That, and you see this when you, you, know, you go on a deployment, whether a Marine or a sailor, you get so close like you are in Bancroft right now because you live and work with the people you're in. And you can tell when somebody's not right. Like, hey, that, what, what's wrong? What, something's not right. You know, well, my girlfriend just broke up with me or whatever it is. But if you don't have that baseline of what, how, what normal is for your people, then you don't know that, Hey, the fact that they haven't eaten in two days or that, you know, they're not cracking jokes like they normally, you don't know when something's right or something's wrong. So that discussion on trying to maximize our time and, you know, breakfast as being one of the examples of doing that um, is one way to get after it. And I, and I know even to this day, there's people that still ask me, well, why do we have to do this? You know, and I, I will continue to say this and I, I, that FaceTime as a leader is absolutely critical. Um, so trying to make up for lost time without overly burdening everybody is a challenge. I think, 
you know, there's some experiences that have been lost, you know, like when, when the first seas did service assignment this year for the class of 23, you know, one of the questions I asked them, and I got a better response in the class of 22, really class 22, when they lost a lot of summer training, you know, like former brigade commander, I was talking to her one day about the King Hall being like a wardroom and she had never been in a ship's wardroom. I found that just sad to think that she had never had that experience that every midshipman at some point should eat in the wardroom on a ship. Um, I think 23 was better, and I think 24 and 25, are, are they're going to they're gonna have the full summer of experience. You know, when someone asked me what's my favorite part of the Naval Academy, it was not here. It was being on a cruiser in the med. It was being at Mount Warfare Training Center with Marines. It was doing all the summer training because that's where I really learned about what it was meant to be in the Navy and the Marine Corps. So trying to make up for those lost opportunities has really been my focus. And the other thing is, it is reinforcing the standards of what right looks like. And, and this is the same thing at General Finesse, and we face at Second Marine Division. And we continue to face is, is reinforcing those standards. And it's not just about not wearing blue and golds in T-Court. Don't get me started on that. It's if there's someone, if there's a rule that you have to follow, and you're not willing to follow it here, how are you going to all of a sudden as an ensign or second lieutenant now enforce those rules? And again, I talked about the why and the buy-in. At some point, that switch has to flip. So I am not expecting perfection from you all, but that's my standard. This is a developmental. People are going to make mistakes. I made mistakes. But if I didn't hold you to the highest standard, the, the standard, and I said, eh, we'll just lower the standard because it's really hard and, we don't, and everyone can't do it, that'd be letting you all down. You wouldn't... You know, we always talk about people will rise to the standards you set. It's when people dumb things down that, that people will continue to lower their standards. So I owe it to all of you to set the standards, set the bar high, and you guys will rise to that. And when, if you don't, then you got to learn from it. You know, and that's, again, that's really kind of the idea of honorable living. It's not just we don't lie, cheat, and steal. It's how do we live on a daily basis. Sir, could you speak a little bit more about uh, your inspiration for the concept of honorable living, which I think is one of the main things that you've emphasized this academic year in addition right. to the mandates and your intent, uh, and maybe the inspiration for the, the graphic that you used and, and how you see yourself implementing it into uh, the brigade and your talks? Uh, yeah, it, it has been the focus of the year, and I will say part of it was a kind of a personal journey of I do I, I my the things I like to read I like to read about sports psychology I, I like to read you know biographies about people when we're coming in versity I've you know David Goggins although he's a bit crazy and you know you can't listen with your mom because it's embarrassing you know f-bombs everything else his story is something that I I draw inspiration from you know so when I as I'm reading through these I'm looking for what are the things I can help make myself better you know, both physically, like my, how I train, but it, it quickly transcends from a physical thing to a mental thing. And so the idea of living an honorable and disciplined life really was inspired, I'll be honest, by what I've been reading and what I understand, you know, the Daily Stoic, which, you know, over in Loose Hall is, is a thing that's talked about quite frequently. Um, and whether it's that or, or you're, you know, I'm, a, I'm Catholic, your religious base of doing something for a higher power, I think in that higher, you know, or for a, a high, you know, higher, something better than yourself or bigger than yourself, whether that's the Navy, the Naval Academy, your, your oath to the Constitution, uh, religion, whatever it is, I, I see when I 
talk to mids who are not in a good place. A lot of times they've kind of lost that sense of purpose or sense of doing something other than about themselves. And we, it played out a lot during the COVID years. Um, and how do I know that? After reading 83 SP211 remediation essays, a lot of them talked about where they had gotten themselves that led them to cheat. And it wasn't about, it wasn't like a just all of a sudden I'm going to cheat on this test. It was they had lowered their standards physically. They had stopped doing the things they were supposed to, shaving, wearing their uniform. They had basically lost their sense of purpose. And they got to a point where the idea of cheating became something that seemed like it was, it was okay. And, and so I thought, and I thought a while about that is we need to make sure that we don't, people don't get to a point where their, their morals are so lower that they're going to make a fatal mistake. Um, and so the idea is not about just not lying, cheating, stealing. How do I live every day so that I, when that day of temptation comes, I'm ready. And that, that's kind of the idea of, of honorable living. And, you know, it's not a unique idea to me. I mean, the, you know, on the, daily, on the Stoic side, they talk about the virtues, right? Very similar in the, the, to the, you know, Christian or Jewish. Anybody talk about those same virtues is living those. And I think if you focus on what I'm supposed to do versus what I'm not supposed to do, it, it leads your a positive way of looking at the world. So that being said, so the, what was the inspiration? It was 83 SP211 honor remediation essays read over a period of about six months because they all had the same common themes. Like, how did I get back on track? I'm journaling. I'm exercising more. I have a basic daily routine. I do all these things. So I looked at my life. I literally did a, what am I doing? Am I doing those things? Am I modeling the behavior for you all that I want to have? You know, so now I get up, same time you all get up at 5.30, like the please do, 5.30 every morning. I PT every single morning. I read something like the Daily Stoic or listen to the podcast while I'm riding my bike. So I have developed a basic daily routine. I'm practicing journaling. It's not my favorite thing. I'm not a writer. It's not the best, but I'm doing it. And so I took all those lessons from everyone who went through mediation saying, this it shouldn't take remediation to do this. This is We should be teaching you all to do this. And what, what may work for one person may not work for the other, but we need to talk about it. And so that was the idea. As far as the actual diagram, I'm a fire supporter by trade, artillery, but also naval aviation. Our aviation is a huge part of what we do to, to deliver ordnance when people need it. And it is a very, it's technical, but there's also an art to it. And getting that aircraft to safely drop bombs on a target that's in close proximity takes a communication and a level of trust between the guy on the ground and the aircraft. And as I thought about like how that attack profile work, it really like, hey, this makes sense. Like if you have an aircraft, you put a mark, like you drop an artillery round on the target or near the target and say, from the mark, here's what I need you to do. So if he's off course, he can steer in. But there comes a point where if you look at the aircraft and he is aiming at you or instead of the target, it's abort. Like don't drop those bombs. And you know, I've been in those situations where Everyone on the hill is like, oh, no, abort. So that idea of going fast, coming in on the target, where the, the amount of leeway for mistakes decreases the closer you get to the target, I think was kind of a way to look at it. And, you know, a mistake that for a plebe or a youngster versus for a second class or a firstie, the tolerance goes down. And 
But there is, again, developmental model. There are room for mistakes. This is the place to mis make mistakes. So I think the model fits. I think it's, it fits with the, what we're all going to do, right? Some of you all fly those planes, they're going to drop those bombs, and some of you are going to be on the ground calling for that or you know, involved in that, that deadly business. So that was kind of the idea behind it. Uh, Ensign Stearman was the one who did all the PowerPoint on it. But uh, I, for me, it is a basic model that talks about it's not just not lie, cheat, or steal, but it's how do I live my daily life. So hopefully it, it, it works. If there's a different model out there that makes more sense, I'd be, like, be willing to use it. Uh, I think it's really talking about what are those things that we should be learning. And I'll be honest, I would just from what I just told you is I didn't learn them here, right? I, I have grown what I would consider the habits that have led to success in my life over the last, you know, or last 30 years. And I wished, I, honestly, somebody would have sat down with me here and say, yeah, hard work is important. I think I got that. I think that's the reason I got here. I think it's the reason I've been successful. But there are other habits in your life uh, that will lead to success. You know, and Atomic Habits is another book that midshipmen talk more about than I do. I read it. I think the author's great. I'd like to maybe even get him here. But those little habits of thought, habits of action to steal a General Mattis uh, phrase, I think are important. So if I can instill those into you now, then you'll be 30 years ahead of me. So... Sir, has a midshipman or a group of midshipmen during your time as commandant changed your perspective on leadership? So being in predominantly male units for most of my career, the environment that we currently lived in, and I was an instructor at the basic school, which was probably actually the first time I, I was interacting directly with, with female lieutenants, and then... In my time in the Marine Corps as a ground combat arms officer, I had the first female lieutenants in my unit. I was one of the first units in the Marine Corps. And that's continue to expand over time to where now in the Marine Corps, you know, women can be in every MOS. Um, my son, for example, who's a in ground intel officer, his TBS and IOC, one of his best friends, is a, is a graduate from this institution. And she was the one who got him through out sniper leader course because she was a swimmer and he was not so I think I have been impressed with the way that female midshipmen perform that shouldn't be surprising to any of us but it has been a shift over the last 30 years um, with the way the Marine Corps and certainly the Navy the same we view people and I think we are in a good place where we have not lowered our standards, and it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, where you're from, who you like. If you perform, then you get the job. And has that challenged my, I don't think it's changed my leadership, but it's just become so much more focused because now I'm in an environment that is very different. You know, I get questions on the DX survey about why are there more females than male striper billets? And the answer you may think is, because we pick women more than men. The answer is that in some cases, more women apply for the billets and I pick the most qualified candidates across the board. So it's, it's almost like a self-licking ice cream cone. If men don't apply for the jobs for whatever reason, then, then that happens. So it's an interesting dynamic that, that somehow developed and I would have never thought it would be like that. And I would have thought, similar to what you may think, 
oh, well, it must be that people were picking, you know, because they want the people to look a certain way or whatever else. It's not the case. So it's, it's just kind of an interesting dynamic. I don't, it hasn't I didn't change all of a sudden. I believe something different, but it's, it's interesting to see the dynamic play out here at the Naval Academy. Uh, sir, so on the whole, uh, just one final question. What do you expect your legacy overall to be once you depart as commandant? And to that, what specific impact do you think you have left on the culture of the brigade and the institution of the Naval Academy as a whole? Hopefully it's not about bringing breakfast back. It's a little more than that. I, I say that jokingly. Um, I think we're all product of timing and I think of my predecessor and the extreme challenges that the brigade and the leadership went through to get through COVID. And I think, you know, kind of my focus has been getting us back to standard. But I, clarify what I just said. I, am, I think I've been pretty good about thinking about not, hey, we're going back the way it was, whether that's 1990s or 2019. It's Let's take where we were. Let's take the lessons, hard lessons learned during COVID and move forward to make sure, one, we're living by our standards, but we're, that we're, we're doing it in the right way. So I think I've been open to changes where appropriate, but I think hopefully my legacy is building you all to have the character to go out and lead. I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10, 15 years, but I, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that we'll be in some sort of hostilities around the globe, probably in the Pacific is that the lessons you learned here will lead you to be the leaders we need in the, for the Navy and the Marine Corps. So I hope that's my legacy. Yes, sir. And hopefully someone dusts this out of the archives and <laughs> listens to it in 20 years. And agrees. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Uh, that concludes our questions for today. Uh, thanks for taking the time to answer them. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate it.